Revelation chapter 11, beginning in, in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they shall tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half years and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they shall be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints." And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. We come to Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a continuation of that interlude that began in chapter 10. You remember that sort of pattern that uh, likewise in the end of chapter 6 we came to the, the end, almost but not quite, 6 but not 7 of those first set of events. And then we had an interlude and the, the nature of that interlude was to explain what the church is supposed to be doing for all the time from when Christ ascended into heaven till when he comes again in glory. And so it was that in, in chapter 10 we had an interlude. We'd come to the sixth, but not the seventh of the trumpets. And so the end, but not quite the end, 
and we are reminded what it is that we're supposed to be doing. If you recall the message of a couple of weeks ago, it was that the mission of the church, the thing that Christ has us doing on this earth, is to proclaim the mysteries of God, or in other words, to preach the gospel. That's the mission. And today, we have what's behind that mission. We have the power of God. You see, Christ does not just give us a mission. He also gives us the power. He also gives us the protection in order to carry out that mission. Well, that's what we have in this first section in chapter 11. It's summarized by the words of verse 3. I will give power to my witnesses. And we have to believe that. If we are part of Christ's church then we have to believe that God is going to give power to us as we witness. If you're outside, and if you simply come under the preaching of the word of God because you want to hear this message, then you have to believe that this message comes with power, with Christ's own authority, with his own power to do with it as he will. That is the promise given to us this morning. Now once again, there are some elements of typological language to work through, Uh, as there is throughout the book of Revelation. Why, for instance, is it these two witnesses? What's that? Well, it could be pointing to Moses and Elijah as summarizing and representing all of the law and all the prophets. You remember they were the, the ones that were with Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, so maybe it's that. Or maybe in just far more ordinary sense, it's just the fact that Christ sent out his disciples two by two as his two witnesses there to establish all truth. They don't go alone. They don't speak on their own authority, but rather they, they go speaking someone else's message. But those two witnesses then uh, represent all of Christ's church in this world. Now, if that's the case... We know that chapter 10, Christ gave John and Jesus, the whole church, the mission to prophecy, to witness on his behalf. In chapter 11, he gives us power. And the power begins with the fact that the true church is precisely measured. That's where this, this power and protection begins. That just as we had with 144,000 in the last interlude, you remember how it was that the mission of the church was to make, to seal all the servants of God, all those who'd ever be saved. Um, that's what's going on right now is all those servants, all those people who'd come to saving faith in Christ. That's, that's what the church is doing. And the fact that they're typologically, symbolically given this particular number of 144,000. Why that? Not because that's the actual number. It's vastly more than that. We know that for certain. But because it is a precise number. It is a perfect number known to God. And all of them are kept and numbered. And likewise so it is with the temple of God here being measured. This temple of God representing all of God's people. Every aspect of it is measured and known to God. That's extremely important for us to keep in mind. So all that begins with the fact that we are measured, we are numbered. And then furthermore, they're given the power to stand. He will give power to his two witnesses to proclaim this message that they've been given. And they're also going to be protected from anything that would silence them. Now, the reason why they need, as we're soon going to find, as we've already heard throughout this book, the reason why they need that protection is because the world's not going to be happy about the message that they proclaim and the world will attempt to persecute them and they will be persecuted but they will not ultimately be silenced 
at least for the time that they're given to prophecy, at least for the time that they're given to carry out their message, they would not ultimately be silenced because God's own power and protection keeps them going. Now, in all this, we cannot forget that this is about Christ. The whole revelation is all a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we don't see Christ in this. We're not seeing it. Yes, it's speaking mainly about his church. It's speaking mainly about these prophets. But it's his power. It's his church. It's his body. It's his concern and his care for us. You know, that's one, one thing we can think of how this, in the whole word of God, from the beginning to the end, it's a gradual realization. We get a little bit more hint here and there and the, and the other. That the reason why this power is ours, the reason why this mission is ours, the reason why this protection is ours, is because Christ is caring for his own body, for his own bride. The reason why we have these things is because we are part of Christ, united to him. We are the bride of Christ. And can we expect then that he's going to care for us. Can we expect that he's going to give us his power and protection? Yes, we can. Because he's caring, as in the words of Ephesians, for his own body. And we can expect him to do that at least, can't we? Well, the title of this sermon is I Will Give Power to My Witnesses. And we covered in three points Christ's church is precisely measured, Christ's church is empowered. And Christ's church is protected. It's measured, empowered, and protected. First, Christ's church is measured. In verses 1 and 2, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So... Why is John given this measuring rod? You know, measuring rod would be similar to our own methods of measuring something. We have a ruler, as we call it, and it is uh, a definite measure of something in order that we might know the measure. Uh, things have a measure, you know, whether or not we measure them or not. There is a precise length to this table. I don't happen to know it. It has a length. But if we were to take something with a known length, like a, a measuring rod, like a ruler, we would be able to find out what that is. Well, the purpose of measuring something is so that its dimensions are known. Now, notice, of course, that uh, this is being spoken to John. The angel said, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, Rise, you measure the temple of God. Apparently, the Lord wants John himself to find out the dimensions of this particular entity, the temple, and he wants us to know through that. Well, before we unpack all of that in particular, we ought to see that this is pointing us back to Ezekiel. Like in Ezekiel chapter 40, and in fact the next, uh, the next number of, of chapters in the 40s of Ezekiel have everything to do with the same idea. Uh, it says in, in Ezekiel 40 verse 3, there's a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything that you see. 
Now there is a wall all around the outside of the temple, and the man's hand was a measuring rod. And those of you who have read through Ezekiel know that these next seven chapters carry on with the precise measurement of the temple. Every last aspect of the temple, every, every wall, and every room, and every section, and every furnishing is being measured. And that number, that measurement now being known by God's servant, and therefore to all of us. What is the point of all that? Well, again, what's the temple? Look, there's no temple. Revelation makes it absolutely clear. All we have to do is skip to the end to find out the reality in Revelation 21:22. There is no physical temple in heaven. Or I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. All right, so there's no temple. Christ himself is a temple. Why is it being measured? What's our, what's our situation with that? Well, what's our connection with Christ? Are we connected with Christ? Yes, we are. We're his, own, we're his body, you see. We are part of that temple. And so it says in Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. That's us. All those who have their faith in Christ, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. If, there, if the old idea of a temple is a place where God particularly has his residence, guess what? If you're in Christ, that's you. God has his residence in you. You're, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You are in union with Christ. You're the dwelling place of the Holy God. And you are being built up together jointly as a whole unit into this magnificent temple, the body of Christ, forevermore. Second Corinthians 6.16 You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what is it then that John is measuring when he has this measuring rod in his hand to measure the temple of God? He's measuring us. He's measuring the vast extent of God's people, those who are being built up into the temple of God. That's what he's measuring. Why is he measuring it is the question. What's the purpose of it? Well, for the same reason that we have things like Revelation chapter 7. You remember that. That was a bit repetitious, wasn't it? 12,000 from this tribe. 12,000 from that tribe. 12,000 from that one. Over and over and over again. 12 times 12. Well, again, it's even more tedious in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Every room, every furnishing. Very tedious to read. But what's the message? (laughs) The message is that God hasn't forgotten about any of us. The message is that he is concerned with every last detail of his own people. There is nothing that is outside of his concern. Yes, he's measuring the outside dimension, but he's also measuring the inside dimension. Yes, he's, he's measuring the, how, how tall the whole group of us might be, but he even measures the last little bit of furniture, every part of us, because it is his concern. Measuring, you see, and counting are things you do for, th- for what you, you care about. Stores count their stock. You go to the grocery store, sometimes you see people there with a machine, they're counting their stock, because that's their big business in life, to make sure that their groceries are accounted for. Banks, they count their money, why they care about it. It's important for them to know every, where every pound is going, where it is. The better banks have better accountability over their money. Well, Christ counts his church. He measures it. He knows its dimensions He cares for us in that way. People sometimes ask me how it was that they taught us to be leaders in the Marine Corps. 
And I, I have to disappoint them because there's nothing earth-shattering about the, what we were taught. There was nothing avant-garde. There was nothing uh, very glamorous about it. It's extremely basic. And you know, the root of it all began with basic accountability, knowing how many people you had at any one time. That doesn't, that's not very earth-shattering, is it? But that was, the, that was the root of it all. Even as a, a basic recruit, having no power, no authority whatsoever, we all took turns doing firewatch in the middle of the night. And your one job was to keep track of how many of those recruits were sitting there or were asleep on their racks. And if anyone happened to be gone for any one reason, of course, you had to account for it. And then the, the, uh, the officer of the day would come and ask you, and the thing that you had to immediately tell them was exactly how many you had. And if the number wasn't right, you're in big trouble. Well, that, that just continued. At any one time, when you're on deployment or in garrison or whatever, you had to know exactly how many people you had and what they were doing at any one time. And if there was ever a formation and the numbers didn't add up, you'd say, where's Smith? Find Smith. We're not doing anything until you find him. Where is he? We need to know. Well, only negligent, incompetent leaders lose track of their people. Okay? And Christ is not like that. There is exactly 144,000. Again, that's a typological number. We don't know how many that is, but that number is known. And he hasn't lost track of any of us. They're supposed to be. In fact, it's not just that somehow those numbers add up to 144,000. It's precisely 12,000 from this and 12,000 from that. There is a number of exactly how many people from England are going to be in heaven forevermore. And not one of them are going to be missing. He's not going to substitute us out. He's not going to say... wasn't, you know, times were rough in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the, the 21st century, and I wasn't able to get all those, those English people into heaven. So I'm going to have to substitute with some Chinese or some Africans or something else. No. Every last one that he has determined from every particular nation, tribe, and tongue on earth will come, and he won't lose a single one of us. Christ has us all accounted for. It's just what we knew back in John chapter 10. Christ, the good shepherd, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. What's this to say? If nothing else, Christ has accountability of the men and women and children that his father has given to him. At no point is, is a father ever going to say to the son, where's Smith? And Christ says, I, I don't know, maybe I lost him. He's gone, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I must have lost track. Every last one of the millions and millions that the father has given, he has perfect accountability, he knows us, he has measured us, he keeps track of us. And that is the basis for the rest of these things that we know about God's church. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, Christ takes it a, thing, a step further than just some military leader because a church is the body of Christ. And it's a beautiful and intimate thing, isn't it? That he knows the dimensions of the church. You know why? Because he knows his own dimensions. Knowing someone's measurements is something very intimate, isn't it? How many people do you know the measurements of? I would know two. I would know my own and I have written down somewhere Pam's measurements. Well, I, I don't know your measurements. Um, you can imagine that's a very intimate thing to know. 
And it's someone, well, you see, the reason why Christ might know our dimensions is because we are his body. And he knows his own dimensions. He knows his own measurements. And therefore, we can be sure that we are not lost. We can be sure that we will not be unaccounted for. Notice, by the way, that though it is very careful, uh, he's very careful to say, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But what does he say in verse 2? Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Well, this is two things. This is, first of all, a, a reminder that the great concern of God is his own people, uh, we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, yes, God is a God. Uh, God is the Creator of all men, but He's not the Father of all men. He is the Father of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who are saved, and He has only a secondary concern for those who are outside. And also, we have a reality then that there is something, there is some entity that is connected with the church, but that God doesn't really care about. All right, he's completely measured. He knows us intimately, his own people. This is the inner court of the, the real part of the temple. But then there's this outer court given to the Gentiles, so to speak. And it can't be speaking of Gentile Christians because, uh, you know, this, as we find, these are uh, largely Gentile churches that the seven letters are written to. So it's certainly not that it's just that these are Gentile, uh, Gentiles versus Jews. What we're talking about, it would seem to be, is that these outer courts given over is a fact that throughout history, there are going to be those who are not really united with Christ, who haven't really put their faith in Christ, who yet want to claim the name, who yet want to occupy. They're sort of squatters on God's property, wanting to claim the name, wanting to have that association, yet they aren't. And as we'll see, this points to the dual nature of the persecution of the church, it is not just from the world that everyone knows it's the world that is opposing the church. There's also this situation of the court of the Gentiles, those who would claim the name of Christian, who are also much trouble. And in some ways, and sometimes they're even more trouble, because they claim the name of Christian, yet in reality, they are not. Well, we are going to be measured we are known, our measurements are known perfectly because Christ knows himself. We're not going to be lost. We're not going to be without suitable attention. And secondly, Christ's church is empowered. It says in verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. I will give power and here are the, the things that we must keep in mind if we don't keep if nothing else is kept in mind in this second point we must keep in mind this this dual idea of power we really do have power we really have been power given power but the power is christ i will give power to them because we constantly get one of those two things wrong we are constantly other imagining that there is no power why even bother trying to witness to people it's not going to work. We're not expecting anything to happen this morning at church because this, this, this power, this, there's not enough power sufficiently to overcome the opposition of sinners. Their sin is too great. 
Their deadness is too much. It can't be overcome. So that's one problem. We don't really believe that there's power. And on the other hand, sometimes we do think that there's power, but we think that is ours. We, we think in terms of, of the flesh. We think in terms of human beings. And the only times that we really are, are confident are when things are sewn up in some sort of human way. And we say, this can't lose. We've got this thing completely, uh, completely worked out. Because it's coming from us. From worldly methods. From our own power and authority. And we think that that is going to work. Well, neither of these things are the case. We really do have power. Yet that power is from Christ himself. I will give them power. Now keep in mind that even in his state of humiliation, Christ retained all power. We can't forget that. You know, there in that same chapter of John, my, of course my favorite, John 10, 18, no, speaking of laying down his own life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So don't for a moment think that just because Christ when is in his state of humility and you see him there in all of his weakness, there's no outward glory whatsoever, and it seemed to be completely under the power of the, the ruling authorities, he says, no, you can't take my life unless I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. It will happen at the moment of my choosing and not before it. And just as he says very specifically to Pilate, Again, in the face of what would appear to be the one who had all earthly outward power, he says, Do you, uh, this is Pilate speaking to Christ, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? You see how that is? You know all the power I've got? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. God is a source of all power, and we must not forget that. And God's power does not oppose itself. If God wanted Christ to live, then the power that he delegated to Pilate wasn't going to override that. But if it was in the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God to sacrifice his own son, then those, that power that he gave to Pilate would be used in that way to accomplish his own ends. We cannot forget that the power comes from God. By the way, in Revelation, power, the word power is mentioned in almost every chapter and many of these chapters, many, many more times than, than, than once. And you know, in the great description of, of Christ in Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Well, the message for us is that Christ has this power. He's received it, and it's repeated over and over and over again to this weak and suffering and persecuted church that typified by most of those churches in these seven letters that begin the the book of Revelation. He really has this power to give to his church. He's going to use it for the benefit of his saints and the exercise of his business on earth. And here's what we need to keep in mind. It is for the exercise of his business on earth. Christ himself was about his father's business. And Christ was given power to carry out his father's business. He wasn't on his own errand. And if we want to experience real power in our lives, we need to make sure that we are on Christ's errand. No matter how it is, no matter what we're particularly called to do, no matter what our vocation. But the point is, The power comes when we are on his mission, when we are on his errand. We will have that power. Yet we will have it 
Notice also in humility, because these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is a symbol of mourning and of humility. And it reminds us that though we might have this great power, it is the office itself. It is the function that we're given. It's not the men themselves. They're not so much as named. Keep that in mind. These witnesses are not given names. They are nameless witnesses. And that should be our attitude. That should be our approach as Christ church. We are but nameless witnesses. Not at all looking to make a name for ourselves, a reputation for ourselves. Just carrying out what Christ has given. And they are clothed in sackcloth. You know, in the Old Testament, prophets often put on sackcloth when their, when their message was one of repentance, when their message was of judgment. They were, they were sad. They were in, in uh, they weren't appreciative. They didn't like the idea that they had to speak of this impending judgment of God, calling men to repentance. They were sad about the state of the nation, and they wore sackcloth because of it. Well, that's our situation of proclaiming this message. We're not triumphalists and saying, ha-ha, you're, you're all going to burn. We're not in despair, imagining that we have no power whatsoever and not even bothering to open our mouth. And neither are we of those who come in our own name, and our own power. Rather, we're those clothed in humility, walking before God, doing his bidding, empowered by his spirit to do the thing that he's called clothed in humility. And finally, in this point, we ought to see that it is for a particular time. It's for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Those of you who know your Old Testament know that this uh, echoes the three and a half prophetic years of Daniel, time, times, and half a time. It's also similar to the length of which the Lord Jesus Christ ministered on earth, But it is symbolic, we think, for a time much longer than that. Probably the entire time between Pentecost and the second coming, or perhaps just minus a little bit in the end. We're going to talk about this, uh, Lord willing, next time. But maybe there's a a little bit of time at the very end when the church, when the voice of the church is no longer being heard at all. That terrible time that was mentioned uh, between the silencing of the church and the very end of time. We don't know exactly how long that might be. But the point is that the time is finite. It's just like what we had in Revelation 2.10. Don't fear any of these things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And the point of that is to say that it doesn't go on forever. We're tempted to think that, aren't we? As we undergo persecution, we think this will never end. And if you think that way, then you'll be in despair. You can't. The only people who ought to think like that, who cannot avoid thinking like that, are those who are in hell. They, they, if they think that it's going to go on forever, they're quite right. But you, child of God, are not in that situation at all. And if you are called to suffer, be absolutely certain that it is for a limited, finite period of time. In fact, sometimes it's much less than we might have in mind. We imagine something may be going on for the rest of our life, but God mercifully delivers us out of it in far less than that. And so we should not lose hope. We should not be those who are in despair, but rather recognizing that our time is for a limit. Now, on the flip side of that, yes, our suffering is for a limited amount of time, but our opportunity is also for a limited time. 
Do not think that we'll continually always have opportunities to serve God as witnesses on this earth. It is for a short time. Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, as it is said of Esther. She was raised up for a particular time and place. And likewise, we can look through all of church history and find those whose ministry may have been brief indeed, for a particular moment, a time, and a place that was given to them to witness. Well, thirdly and finally, Christ's church is protected. We know that we are perfectly and precisely numbered. That's the basis. Christ cares about us as his own body and that he does give us power and that more particularly that we are protected You see in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. It's very clear that they are given power in order for their own protection, in order to carry on this work. It's very obvious if these witnesses are killed, if they are allowed to be killed, they can't witness. It's a very simple equation, isn't it? Something to keep in mind. Even if we're not in the mood at the moment to remember that we are Christ's own body and he cares for us as he cares for his own body, or that we're his own people, he has to keep accountability for us, where none of us is going to be lost, we're his great treasure, we're his crown, we're his great project in life. If we forget about all those other things, we have to keep in mind that his own purpose, his own purpose and mission requires that we remain protected. His church needs to be protected in order to carry out the mission that he has for us. It goes back to the Old Testament and we consider the covenant people of God. There are so many times where you think they're going to be wiped out. They have provoked God so much that God is just going to wipe them out because of their sin. Or that they're just these huge enemies all around them, they're going to wipe them out and nothing can stop it. And we have to say no. No, actually, I know one thing about this is that the Messiah has to come from these people. So it has to be, these people have to be kept. I know that God has made his covenant promises to these people. These people have to be kept. And so it is with us. If his voice is going to be heard in this world, if his light is going to be seen And we know that it will. We know that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Then we have to be kept. We have to be protected. So that's the basis. That's the the lowest common denominator of our protection is that God has to carry out. We have to keep on witnessing in our mission. Now as for the, the way that the protection is being explained as the witnesses having power to call down uh, various kinds of plagues, well, that sort of uh, points us to Elijah. I don't know if you know that uh, in First Kings 17 and 18, Elijah gives, uh, proclaims that there won't be rain except by my word. And there is a drought and uh, um, obviously a famine that goes along with a drought for three and a half years. And Elijah the Tishbite, one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And the way it's explained in James is not to make Elijah someone particular, the only one that that ever happened to. In James, it's actually broadened to include all of us. 
It says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the, earth, the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He was a man of nature like ours. He wasn't special in that sense. And so it is that God has handed to us great power and authority on this earth. In some sense, to do it good and to do it harm. Now, the nature of that power is not for us in terms of a famine or a drought of water, a famine or drought of material things, but it has to do with the nature of their mission, which is preaching. It has to do with what the word that they proclaim. The nature of the power that is given to them is in the proclaiming of truth. It says in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies from their mouth. You ever think about the uh, whole armor of God? There's this elements for every, there's these seven elements, you know, there's a breastplate and there's a helmet and there's the, the, the feet and all the rest of it, but there's only one weapon that's mentioned, only one weapon. So all this protective gear, just one weapon, and that's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And Christ himself, and he's depicted in the first chapter of Revelation, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And it's with this sword that he's going to slay the nations. The weapon that's in the hand, or rather the mouth of Christ, is the word of God. And the weapon that is given to God's people is also the word of God. So it is not at all that we, we call down you know, actual literal curses on the earth that the crops would be destroyed or something like that. It's rather as we faithfully proclaim the word of God, it is always a word of salvation and of judgment. A word of salvation to those who receive it in faith and a word of judgment and condemnation to those who refuse to hear it. It's a sharp, two-edged sword. Now these, this protection as we'll find in the next section, Lord willing, next week, this protection does not carry on forever. It is just until the hour. It says in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. There is a power for them to prophesy the 1260 days. The amount of time that is given to them on earth to do this mission And then when it's done, so are they. What does this remind us of? Reminds us of Christ, doesn't it? Reminds us of Jesus Christ. That he had this omnipotent, divine protection. No one could, they kept trying to get him. You remember in John 7.30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to do it, they couldn't. His hour hadn't yet come. Or in the next chapter, John 8, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury. He taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. You see this great witness, the great witness, speaking with the power and authority of God, doing what he was called to do, being the witness, the faithful witness he was called to, and no one could stop him. They could not silence him. They could not put him to death until his hour came. And so it is with Christ's church. We're just the mouthpieces of Christ. And we in everywhere, we share in Christ. We share in his, his own protection. We share in his power. 
we share in his ability to do that what he's call, what, which he's called for a certain time and also it would appear that we share in this fact that maybe one day they will be given the power to bring us low. And some we know in the history of the church have actually been given as martyrs. They have died for their faith. And that is not outside the providence of God. That is part of sharing in Christ. We share with him in so many things. And it's a great privilege. Well, to more particularly apply these things to ourselves, we need to expect to be persecuted. I think we have to start there. We have to simply say that we ought to expect that the world is going to oppose us. And that is in direct relationship to how faithful we are. We know that it is all those who, who desire to live godly lives in this world, they will be persecuted. All those who are faithful, they will be persecuted. If you want to avoid persecution, it's very simple. Don't act like you're one of Christ. Do like what Peter did, sitting by the fire, talking with the people, maybe trying to get, even trying to change his accent a little bit so he wouldn't sound so much like a Gyalin, but that didn't work. He was identified as being one of Christ's, but even then he wanted to deny it. Well, you can try, but it's not going to work. If you're really a Christian, it's not going to, in the end, it's not going to work. But in direct relationship to your desire to live a faithful, godly life, doing that which you're called to do, and on the occasions that God gives you to witness for his name, you're going to suffer persecution. You just will. If you're so identified with Christ that he says, this is my own measurement, this is my own body, you're part of me. You have my power, you have my authority, you have my message, you have my mission, you're part of me. What do you think the world is going to do with us? They're going to treat us just as they treated Christ himself. The more we look like him, the more we sound like him, the more we act like him, the more we're we're going to be treated like him by the world. Expect to be persecuted. But remember and never forget that the time is limited in every sense. The time of which you will have to undergo this persecution, even the time of which you can have the opportunity to undergo this great opportunity to serve him in this world, it is very limited. And therefore, we should not lose heart. We are not like those in hell. We have every hope, knowing that our God is merciful, and he is simply treating us as he treats his own dear son. Why? Because, again, we're in union with his own son. Do not think that we have been forgotten about any more than we would imagine that the Father has forgotten about his Son in Gethsemane and on the cross. God knows us. He keeps account of us. At any moment, he knows every last one of our names and what we are doing. And he gives us power to endure this persecution for the limited amount of time that he gives us. Thirdly, I would just say again to hear the message. You know why? Because I was struck with the reality that Christ gives power to his witnesses and that it is for a limited opportunity. And so if that's the case, if I've been given power to speak God's word, then let me speak those words of life to you again. Let me speak the words of the gospel. If you've been given power to be here one more time, then maybe you ought to hear this message, these words that have the power to save you. You know, what is it that could possibly stop, by the way, your salvation? 
My imperfections as a preacher? No, that's not a problem. Because it's supernatural power that he gives. And so that's not an obstacle. What about the greatness of your sin? Lots of sinners think that. Lots of people who are not Christians think, I'm just too bad to be a Christian. The things that I've done, nothing can atone for it. Well, I want to tell you that that's no problem. Your sin is not an obstacle to him because Christ came to save sinners. That's the very thing that, that qualifies you for salvation is the fact that you are a sinner. And you know what? Christ sometimes seems to take delight in saving the very, very worst. It's almost as if he's, saying, he's showing off just how powerful he is to save sinners. He's showing off just how efficacious the blood of Christ is to save the very worst. So he picks the very worst sometimes. So do not imagine that your sin is an obstacle to your salvation. It's not. Don't even think that your deadness, your spiritual deadness, is going to stop it. It's very true that we're all born dead in sins and trespasses. We're children of wrath. But Christ has the power to give life to the dead. You see, in all of these things, as we're thinking this morning, we have to keep in mind that it is Christ's power. It's not the power of any of us. It is Christ's power that he's giving us. And that power is omnipotent. That power knows no bounds. It's infinite. And he has the power to give life to the dead, just like Lazarus. Lazarus come forth, and he comes forth. He speaks your name. He knows us all by name. He calls us all by name. And you will come forth. Your deadness is no obstacle. The reality is that God so loved the world as we have in John 3.16 that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, for reasons that are unfathomable, set his love upon his people no better than anyone else, possibly worse than some. Set his love upon us so that he would send his own beloved son to suffer and to die, that we might be saved. These are majestic. That's good news, you see. That's good news for sinners, headed for an eternity in hell, condemned by the righteous judgment of God, that Christ himself has withstood that judgment, that wrath of God, and he rose again the third day, so we know that it worked. And all of us who put our faith in that message and in that Lord Jesus, we are saved. And there's nothing that can stop that. If you put your faith in him, God is the one who's enabled you to believe. And God is the one who will enable you to stand. And he gives to you everlasting life. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message given to us in Revelation chapter 11. We are so thankful, Lord, for the message of the two witnesses by whom we have been saved. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be the last. We know, Lord, that your church has particular dimensions. And by the end, every last one of us will certainly be accounted for and none of us lost. We know that in Christ's omnipotent power, the message goes forward and sinners are saved. And how we pray that they would be even this very day. We ask, Lord, that you would show yourself to be powerful. We ask, Lord, that we ourselves would be humble. That we would be humbled by the reality that we have no power at all. We can do nothing of our own. But that we'd be heartened 
in knowing, Lord, that you can do all things through us and that you can save the very worst among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.